So we started last week with a uh, new series in the book of Colossians. And uh, so if you weren't here, that's okay. Just kind of give you a little background in a minute on that. But uh, Colossians is a, we always say a book of the Bible, but it's really a letter that's in the Bible, a letter that was written in the first century to a church in a real place called Colossae, to some real people who were Jesus followers in that time. And it was uh, to encourage them, to equip them and challenge them with what they were going through in their culture, which really when we think about it and we read about it and we study it, we say, you know what, the same things they were going through in their culture in that first century are things that we're still struggling with. So we read this same letter and say, wow, even though that was written in the first century, it has relevance for us today if we'll really look at it and see, and it can say something to us. So um, we're going to kind of get into an identity thing today. Um, the name of the message is Confirming Identity. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to pull out your driver's license and confirm your identity? And a lot of times we get irritated with that, right? Like, why do I have to show you this? You know, you know, you should know who I am, but we have to do it. And there's a lot of different places we have to do that. Recently, I went to the tag office because I had to get a new tag and a title for a car we had just purchased. And you have to prove who you are with all these things. When we, um, uh, about two years ago, when we adopted our daughter, we had to pull out a lot of stuff to prove who we were and go through all these things to show people. Y'all have had to do it, and you understand. Now, it can be irritating because you want to just get this done, but you have to confirm your identity. But really, in a lot of ways, I'm glad that they do that, aren't y'all? How many times when you use your credit card do they ask for some ID? Rarely, if ever, right? But when they do, I always thank them when they say thank you. I said, yeah, I'm glad that you're actually checking to see who I am before you run my credit card. I appreciate that because with uh, identity theft and those kind of things going on. So today, basically, Paul's going to be saying... You know, hey, I want you to know in this early church, and these early Jesus followers, I want you to know, I want you to be very crystal clear on the identity of Jesus Christ. Because in their culture, there's been some question about that. Was Jesus really who he said he was? A lot of people would say things like, well, as we do in our culture, oh, well, he was a good teacher, he was a good man and all these things, but he really wasn't God. He really wasn't the son of God. He really didn't have that deity. And so it made some of them start scratching their head and say, is that right? Is that true? Just like a lot of us do. We read blogs. We read things on the internet where people say, ah, oh, that's not true. It's just a bunch of made up stuff. But we need to know who Jesus really was and we need to be confident in that. And so that's what he's trying to do through this letter. So I'm going to kind of do a little bit of background. He's in prison, as we talked about last week, writing this letter. Wherever he went, it caused problems. Because he was saying, this Jesus can transform your lives. And when he was transforming lives, it made this tension between what was going on in culture and what people said was right, the right way to live and the things to follow, and what was going on in culture. And it created a tension. And they wanted him to get out of their town and stop telling people this good news that could transform their lives. Because it did cause some problems. So he's in prison, but he's not whining and crying and complaining because he's in prison. He's saying, look, how can I encourage how can I continue to bring the gospel message and encourage people that are out there that have heard it while I'm in prison? Well, I'm going to write some letters. And we learned last week that initially what can happen, and this happens in our lives, when we initially become a Christ follower, it's exciting, isn't it? We think about, wow, the God of the universe wants to save me. The God of the universe wants me to, wants to be in relationship with me. And all the stuff that I've done, and he knows and I know, that's kind of created this barrier to God. But he says, I'm not going to let that be a barrier. I'm going to forgive that, and I want to bring you back to me. And you think, wow, that's exciting. I'm a new person. But as we all know, sometimes when we become a Christ follower, life happens, doesn't it? We get into different seasons of our life where we have good years and bad years. We have good things happen and bad things happen. And as we go through that, sometimes 
our Christianity, our relationship with God can get stale. That's just the reality of it, isn't it? And so sometimes, and we start to hear some of the things that are going on in culture, and there becomes this conflict between what our culture or society tells us is what the right way we should think, the right way we should live, and what Jesus in the Bible tells us is the right way we should think and live. And there becomes a, a tension between our identity in Jesus Christ and our identity and purpose according to public opinion. And so that's why I think this is so important that we read what those letters were in the early church. So we learned last week that a guy named Epaphras was in um, this church. He was probably the lead pastor. Um, it was, he was probably pretty young. He became a Christ follower, we believe, in another town called Ephesus during this same time. And he had probably been there where Paul had been there for a couple of years, encouraging and equipping and challenging that church. And then he says, I'm going to go and start a new church in Colossae. And so Paul has met him in Rome. And he says, hey, we got the church up and running. People are meeting together. They're Christ followers, but they're having some issues. And can you maybe help us with that? And he tells them what was going on. We got all this stuff, Paul. You know, we're, we're, we're in there where a lot of people traveling from all over the world are coming in and out. And they have all these thoughts. They have all the, their religions. They have all their philosophies. And as they come in and we buy and sell and trade with them, we're hearing all these different philosophies. And it kind of it, it has a tension. It has a conflict between some of the things they know that are right and true. And it causes some problems. He says, well, let me write them a letter. He goes, because some of them have fallen into this, what's called syncretism. That's where we add or combine several things to our belief and our faith. It's like, well, I have this neighbor, and she's really a good person. They're, they're the best neighbors in the world. Now, they're not believers, but they believe this, and they practice this. And that sounds pretty good, and they're good people, so I think I'm just going to add that to my Christianity. Sounds pretty harmless, right? So then I have this guy at work or this gal at work, and you know she's a great person. I really like her. She's my favorite person at work, and she's not a believer, but she practices this, and she believes this, or she has this philosophy about life. And that sounds pretty good, so I think I'll just add that to my Christianity. Now, that sounds fairly harmless, but in the process, people were getting caught up in some of these beliefs and even pagan practices of these religions and their culture and some of these hollow philosophies of their time. And in doing so, they were actually denying the divinity of Christ, who He truly is. And in so doing, they're denying His power. They're denying the sufficiency of His life, death, and resurrection. Because if Jesus isn't who He said He was, if He's not all we need, and we can do it on our own, and there's all these other things out there that we can do to make it happen, then we deny the power of his death and resurrection. And that's dangerous, y'all. It's real dangerous. Because I don't know about you, but I need a savior. I need to be redeemed. And I need Jesus in my life to do that. So to combat this, Paul writes this letter and is trying to encourage them and say, hey, stay on track. I know those things sound good, but you've got to follow through and think them through. Is Jesus really who he said he was? So what he's going to try to do is say, in this part of the letter we're going to read today is, you need to know the identity of who Christ really is. And so, as we read last week in the first chapter, he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He goes, you need to know the knowledge of His will. And I think that's true today. I want to know God's will for my life in everyday life. I want to know, hey, constantly give me that knowledge to know what to do, how to deal with the things that I deal with in my everyday life, and I believe you do as well. So last week I shared, and maybe today, and, and I shared that today, maybe more than ever, we need to confidently be seeking that knowledge in God's will. And we only do that by looking at His Word. So we're going to pick up with verse 15 of chapter 1. I believe it's going to be on the, on, on the board for us. And we're going to start right there. And uh, Paul says this um, in this 
first chapter of this, this letter. Again, he says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That's a beautiful piece of writing, isn't it? You think about that. There's no doubt who he's saying Jesus is, is there? He's being very clear about that. And we need to hear that, y'all, because again, I get on the internet and I read things that people write and I go, wow, there's people out there that are trying to steer people away from Jesus and say he's this and he's that or he's not this and he's not that. And that's dangerous. And it's sad because the God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. And not only is this beautifully written as you see about it, as, as we've, we've heard as I've read it, it's also believed that in, this, in the first century, this first part of what we just read was actually made into a hymn and was actually sung in the early church. Now think about that. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? All these doctrinal things that are very foundational that are right there about who Jesus is, somebody put it to tunes. Now, how many of us learned in school or in church things about God in songs? I did, didn't you? I mean, that's how we learn things. We learn them better. I mean, I think we could, if they would just turn school into everything dealing with music, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Because y'all got your headphones on all the time listening to your music anyway, you know? I mean, in my house, I got five kids, and I think three of them have Alexa. You know what I'm talking about? And it's constantly, she's being told, not to give them good information, but play what? A song. That's what goes on in my house. But it is, you know, I'm not, I'm not down on music, but I'm just saying, obviously, in the early church, this was something they put music to. So what we see here in this passage is the true identity of Jesus Christ. And there's two things that I think I want us to see. First of all, Jesus has supremacy, he has power, and he has authority over these two things, creation and redemption, and that's important to know. Not only is he the creator, but he's the redeemer. So he says he's the image of the invisible God. Now think about that for a minute. He is the image of the invisible God. That almost seems weird to even kind of say, what does that mean? Well, think about it for a moment. In the Old Testament, we hear about God. We hear that God spoke creation into existence. In the beginning, God, and he spoke. He said, let there be light. There was light. And he said, let, you know, let there be animals. And there were animals. All that kind of stuff. But in the Old Testament, we hear God speak. We see the effects of his power. But no one actually sees God's face. They don't really see his image. And sometimes he speaks through, he speaks to people and they can hear him, but they don't see him. He speaks through things like a burning bush to Moses, like a donkey to Balaam. He can speak in however he wants to, but we don't really see him. And people feared him. They said, if you ever see God, you'll die. 
So people never really saw the image of God. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus came into the world, the Savior. We're just coming off of Christmas. A Savior is born to you. This is the Messiah. This is God's Son. The image of God in the flesh. And as we read and I shared probably during the Christmas time from John's Gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then you go down a little bit more in that first chapter of John chapter 1, and he said, and we hear this a lot during Christmas, the Word became flesh and what? Dwelled among us. I know some of y'all were whispering it. You didn't want to stand out in the crowd, but you were saying it because you know that. That means Jesus put on flesh and bone. God put on flesh and bone in Jesus and came to earth and lived like you. And the the, uh, writers of the New Testament tell us that he felt and was tempted just like all of us. Were. He felt the things we did. He went through the same kind of things. And also in Isaiah it says, For unto us, during Christmas we hear this too, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The child was born, but the son was given because the son already was. And you go, huh? What does that mean exactly? Well, walk with me for a minute. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But walk with me for a minute as we think about the visible the invisible God becoming the visible image of God in Jesus. So I want to walk through Jesus' life just for a minute. In his teaching, Jesus taught by the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are, and he would talk about these things. And the people loved to hear Jesus teach. He said he taught with one-like authority, not like the teachers of the law. They went to temple. They went a lot of times reluctantly. Oh, i got to hear this boring stuff. Some people went with a good attitude, but a lot of them, in the way the teachers made it, it was piling things onto them. There was a lot of guilt and shame. It was all about your performance, and it made them. But Jesus taught differently. He taught these parables, and he gave them a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven is like, and he talked about plants. He talked about God's grace. He talked about God's judgment in a way they had never heard, and they go, wow, God values me. God wants relationship with me. He has grace for me. He's merciful. He's not this guy who's just looking to to put me under. And people were relieved by that. They felt good by that. So in Jesus, they saw a picture of God in the knowledge of who God was. Jesus' first miracle was water into wine. Maybe y'all have heard that before. He was at a wedding. They ran out of wine, and Jesus took water. And I don't know what he did, but he turned water into wine. We don't know how he did that. I think, how do you do that? You know, we know how you take grapes, and you ferment them, and it's this time process, and you mix in stuff and water, and it becomes wine. But it takes time. How did he do that on the spur of the moment at a wedding? I don't know. And when I get to pull my chair up next to Jesus in heaven, I'm going to say, how did you do that? How did you do that? But that's because God in our human minds, we can't. We know there's a process. We know there's a chemical process reaction that goes on with the grapes and all that fermentation that makes wine. How did God do that in that short period of time? How did Jesus do that? I don't know, but he did it. But it showed me that he has the power over chemical reaction because he is the creator and he can do that. When he healed all the different people that he healed that we read about in the New Testament. He healed lepers. He, he healed all kinds of diseases that people have. Who, um, people that could not hear, he touched them and they could hear again. People that could not speak, he gave them the ability to talk again. Those who were blind, and this is probably where the whole visible, invisible things comes to life. If you were blind and Jesus says, I will heal you, and he touched your eyes, and the first thing you saw was him, that was God. What better illustration of the invisible becoming visible than someone who was born blind and now can see because of Jesus. So what that showed us, that Jesus has power over the human body. 
And we understand about diseases, and as technologically advanced as we've come, it's amazing through ultrasounds, through MRIs, and all those things we have medically now that we can say, wow, the body is an amazing thing, and we can do things now that we never could do before. You can just put a little hole in you and stick a camera up there and do the surgery and pull it out, and hey, you're going to be home in a couple of days or whatever, you know? It's amazing. But every time I think about that, there's people in labs all over the world that are looking at diseases and they're trying to figure it out. And I think God is overlooking all of this and going, this is really cool. They're finally figuring out about these things. I already know this. I know what to do. I know how it could be done. But when, they, when, when we figure it out, I bet he's very proud of us. But he's saying there's so much more you don't understand about the human body. But as a creator, I know all those things. He was showing he had the power over the human body. And Jesus cast out demons, and this is kind of a disturbing thing for us. But the demons, when he cast them out, they would talk back to Jesus and say, we know who you are, son of the most high God, don't torture us. Or even in that one story where it says, please cast us out of this man, but send us into the pigs. And so Jesus had conversation with this weird world of demons, and it showed that he had power over the spiritual world. We just sang in one of the songs we just sang this morning about walking on the water, calming the storm. And you remember the disciples were in the boat and they were like, Jesus was asleep. And they go, Jesus, wake up, we're all going to die. You know? And he said, what? And he wakes up and he says, be still, be calm. And all of a sudden the wind and the waves stopped and they were like, who is this man that the waves and the wind obey him? He was showing his power over the natural world. And then he raised people from the dead when he lived and then he showed by his own resurrection that he had power over death. Probably our biggest fear is death, isn't it? And he showed he had power over that. So when I look at that and I hear Paul say he's the image of the invisible God, I go, that's right. He was the image of the invisible God. And more powerfully than anything else was his image of God dying on a cross for his creation. He showed us what love really was. So then Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. And you might say, I thought Adam was the firstborn. I thought Eve, and I thought that was them. And said, wait a minute, Adam wasn't born, was he? He was created. Was Eve born? No, she was created. Did they have belly buttons? You ever thought about that? They didn't need belly buttons, but did they have them? So again, when I pull my chair up next to Jesus in heaven, I'm going to say, did they have belly buttons? Hey, Adam, let me see. The show. Pull your shirt up. You know, I want to see that. Um, inappropriate. What are you talking about? No, I just think it's funny. We all think about these things. We do. We do. All right, but you think about that. So actually, but it was Cain. You remember Cain was really the first one born. He was the firstborn son. So why is Paul talking about being the firstborn? Well, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is overall. He was born on December 25th, year zero, right? No, we know that didn't actually work out. But we know he was born during that first century. We understand that. But what he's saying is, is that he holds first place in creation and creatures. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, what? God. God created. Do you realize that God in the Hebrew language there is plural? Huh? How is God plural? That should be singular, right? It's not. It's plural. You know why? Well, let's go down a little bit further in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26. Then God said... and. Open up your translation, however it is, and make sure I'm not just saying this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the seas and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. Our? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
it's hard to grasp that. It's hard to really understand that. But that's who it was. God, Jesus was with God and the Holy Spirit from the beginning, just like John said in his gospel. And it hit John through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he has been with God from the very beginning. So then verses 16 through everything, he tells us this. Notice where, again, where this puts Jesus about what Paul says. In him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers, rulers and authorities. All have been created through him and for him. So for the Colossian church in that first century, they're saying all things, all authorities, all powers, all thrones, all rulers. You're talking about Rome. I don't know how we really understand. How many of y'all have taken Roman history at school at some point, right? They were a tremendous people, weren't they? I think they ruled in that area for about 1,500 years. And they created some of the most amazing things in their history. Roads, all kind of things that we still practice. Laws, all kind of things that we still practice today came from ultimately the Roman Empire. So for the Colossians, they know this world power seems to control everything. And there's this awe of not only the Roman Empire, but the Roman Emperor Caesar, and to a point that there's even worship of him, that he is like a god. So for Paul to say this, this is a big deal. That's probably why he's in jail. He's like, you don't be talking about Caesar like that. There's not anybody over him. He is the world power. Do you not understand that, Paul? He goes, you can say whatever you want, but God ultimately created Caesar. It was created through him and for him. And they're probably scratching their say, how is that possible? But the truth about that still is today. God created all rulers, all people who are in authority, they were created by him and through him for him. Think about that. And we can think about a lot of evil rulers over history, can't we? You think God created that for him? Well, why did he let Hitler do what he did? Why did he let Pol Pot do what he did? Why did he let these kind of people? God still created them for a purpose. They used them for bad purposes, but all. In the Old Testament, were there evil rulers? Absolutely there were. We read about lots of them. But did God get squelched by what he ultimately wanted to do in redemption of the world? No. He didn't let that bother him. And I know some of you might think, well, he didn't know about the guy we have as president right now or the guy that we had as president before or the guy that might be president next time. We, I hear all this junk out there. But here's the deal. Christ has supremacy over Donald Trump. President Donald Trump. He has supremacy over Vice President Pence. He has supremacy over Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and these people that can't seem to get it together and get this thing solved. Does that frustrate y'all? Drives me crazy. But here's the deal. He's over the House and he's over the Senate, the most powerful nation in the world, the United States, and all the political leaders of the world. He has authority over them, whether they recognize it or it seems like it or not. They were created through him and for him. And they may see this season of seeming power, but they are under, ultimately under a higher authority, and that's Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Think about that. Hold together. I think it breaks God's heart when he sees our nation divided like it is. I think it breaks his heart when he sees any nation in this world divided and people fighting. I think it breaks his heart because he said, that's not what I created my creation to be. I hold them all together. All right, how many of y'all had, have had problems with science classes? I didn't do real well in science class, especially when we got in from, you know, it was like biology and chemistry and then physics. It's like, okay, I'm out. I'm going to be a preacher. <laughs> I wanted to be an engineer, but I was a loser at science, all right? 
But when you start hearing about atoms and protons and neutrons, it's pretty fascinating, but you can get lost in the weeds, can't you? But when you think about it, and you ultimately there's something that holds it, and the more you study science and all that stuff about the way the world is, the planets, you go, there's got to be something that holds all this together. What is that? And even atheists and even people who try to deny there's a God, they say, we don't know what it is. It's not God, but there's got to be something that designed all this and holds all this together. But we don't know what it is. And Jesus is saying, it's me. I've designed all this. I hold all this together. The hugeness of that, he's saying that all things, the creation, all the, he holds all these things together. And that's an amazing thing. And Jesus said that he is the head of the church. The body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And he said, I'm the head of the church. It's not Paul. I'm starting churches all over the place, but I am not the head of the church. I recognize that Jesus. Peter, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's starting churches. He's encouraging uh, believers in the first century, but he's not the head of the church. It's not the Pope. It's not the senior minister, it's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And this is so important because it puts things in perspective. Yes, the senior pastor, yes, the pope, yes, Peter and Paul, maybe they are parts of that, but they are not the head, it is Christ. And when we understand who God is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is, and that we were created by them in their image, it helps give us some perspective. It should give us all and make us realize in humility and seek to be who I was created to be. If He made me, if He created me, and I'm supposed to be what He created me to be, then I want to know what that is, and I want to be that. But we get caught up in this deception of our culture about those who say, well, no, Jesus really wasn't. He was a good teacher. He was a good man, but He really wasn't the Son of God. But Paul's made it really clear that that's not true, that He is. And we better know uh, we might think that we know better. Well, we've come a long way since the first century, Craig. And Paul didn't know all the things that we know now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. God's Word is the same today, yesterday, and what? Forever. And He is who we said He is. But sometimes we get into these things and we just say, well, we'll just make God a small part of our religion or our rituals. But I hear Paul saying that we need to refocus. I hear Paul saying here that we need to be set straight on what our priorities are in our life. And so the first part of our text saying, this is crystal clear that you understand who Jesus is. He has power over creation. But this last part I want to go over real quickly is this, is that Jesus has the power over redemption. And that's the most important part. So it says, for it pleased, he, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. And when I think about what a holy and awesome and powerful God that does rule the universe, and I think about Jesus, I can feel overwhelmed as a creature thinking about, you know what, I'm reminded that if he's so holy and he's so awesome and he's so powerful... Why does he want to reconcile himself to me? Because I've rejected him at times. I've rebelled against him. And not only me, but all people, all things he has wants to bring us together. How? By bringing wrath on us? No, that's not what the story of the gospel is. By making peace through animal sacrifices again? No, we got rid of that. Remember, it's a new covenant. Through his blood that he shed on the cross. That's what Paul's saying. Because of my and your evil behavior, he says, in our mind we became enemies of God. Have you ever thought that? And I know I have, especially when you're little sometimes. You think, man, I messed up. 
I disappointed mom and dad. I did something that I knew was wrong, and it's weighing heavy. It's called my conscience. And I bet God's mad at me. Have you ever had a parent or somebody tell you, God is mad at you? That makes you want to straighten up and fly right, doesn't it? Well, maybe, but it scares the you know, H-E double hockey stick out of you, and I guess that was the, you know, that's the goal. But God said, that's not what I'm about. I don't want to scare you into becoming a follower of Jesus. I want you to understand that it's about love. So Paul said, you were once alienated from God and enemies in our minds because of your evil, evil behavior. Do we understand what he's saying here? Because of my evil behavior in my mind, we think, I'm an enemy of God. I've done him wrong. I've gone against him. God, I can't get close to him anymore. I've blown it. He doesn't love me or want me around anymore. But Paul said it to the Romans this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop listening to people that say, you're not good. Stop listening to the devil tell you that you have lost your relationship with God because you've messed up. Because it's not true. And Paul reminds the Colossian Jesus followers of this. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you. Listen carefully to this. Present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Did you hear that? You are holy in his sight. You are without blemish. And you are free from accusation. That is good news, y'all. I want you to say that with me. I'm holy in his sight. I'm without blemish. I am free from accusation. That is good news, y'all. That is the best news. Do not move from that hope, he says. You're going to be tempted soon after you leave here today. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be doing something. You're going to catch yourself yelling at one of your kids or your spouse or another driver. And you're going to go, man, I've blown it again. And you need to be reminded when you think like that, that you have not blown it. Yes, you need to maybe change your behavior. But you are holy in his sight. You are without blemish. And you are without you are free from his accusation. And that's what we need to remember. Jesus is not, listen to this carefully, Jesus is not in love with some future version of you or me. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's not in love with that because we may become that better version. I'm always going to be better. Aren't you always thinking that? Well, today I'm going to be better. God is not in love with that. Jesus did not suffer, bleed, die on that cross, and come out of that tomb alive to give you eternal life if you become a better version of you. Paul said it this way, while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us and rose for us. Not when we got it all together, but right where we are right then, and that blows me away that he loves us that much. At my very worst, that's when he saved me. And our resolutions to have behavioral modification will fail every time unless we really understand that. Who Jesus really is and how much he loves us at our worst, and he redeemed us at our worst. We have to remember that. Tim Keller, who's the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, said this, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. How good is that quote? It is. We're more sinful than we believe, but we're more loved than we could ever hope in Christ. So when we really believe that that's who Jesus is, when we really believe that He died to redeem me, to bring me back into relationship, that... That is when I will start modifying my behavior to be who He created us to be. That will happen naturally out of love and gratitude, not out of guilt and shame. Isn't that the truth? 
That's the truth of the gospel. I'm not going to modify my behavior because I'm being guilted and shaming to do it. I'm going to, be, I'm going to modify my behavior because I realize the God who is the creator is also the redeemer. And I, love, I realize that love so much that I'm going to live differently because of that. So this morning we want to offer an invitation to maybe somebody you're hearing this for the first time. And maybe some of you have heard this a lot of times and it's just confirming. As I studied for this, you know what, I was encouraged because I'm like, I've heard this before, but the more I study this stuff, I go, God, you are awesome. The image of the invisible God that loves me, the creator that's that awesome and that powerful, and you still want to redeem me and have relationship with me, that's an awesome thing. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation. If maybe you need to step forward and say, you know what, I want him to be my redeemer. I don't understand all that stuff you talked about. I don't understand all that stuff that Paul's saying, but I do know that I do feel this like I'm an enemy in my mind of God and I don't want to feel that anymore. I want to feel like God loves me and I want to come to Him. So we offer that invitation. You can name Jesus as your Savior today, be baptized today, or maybe you just want to start that conversation. So we're going to sing a song and we're going to prepare for a time of communion. We do this every week. If you're a guest here today, it's something we do every week. We remember what Jesus asked us to remember um, when He had His Last Supper um, with his disciples. And he says, I'm starting a new covenant in my blood. And I want you to take uh, bread and remember that this was my body that was given for you on the cross. And I want you to take a cup of wine or juice that reminds you of the blood that I shed for you. And so they've been practicing that since the first century and we still do it today, 20 centuries later. And we do that each week. If you're here and a guest with us today, if you're a believer, we offer you that opportunity. But I remind everybody that Paul tells us that we dare not do this in an unworthy manner. We need to examine our hearts before we take communion and recognize this is something serious. That we are remembering his death and resurrection for us. But we will offer that in just a little bit. We'll have some folks in the back that will bring that right to where you are and you can participate in that. So Kevin's going to lead us in a song. And we're going to stand together. And if somebody has an invi- uh, a decision you want to make today, I'll be right here to try to walk you through that. You're looking for a church home, we'll walk you through that. But let's prepare our hearts for communion right now as we stand and sing this song.